Great Heavenly Father, thank you for this redeeming love that is offered to all through Jesus. We pray that as we spend these moments reflecting on your word just now, we would become satisfied for the first time or fully satisfied again with all that is ours in him. We pray these things in his matchless name. Amen. Please be seated. So I want to start the service off by asking you if you were to rate how content you are. How content are you on a scale, say, of 1 to 10? And I know that's a little arbitrary. You can't put something like contentment in numbers, but your pastor is making you, so do your best. If you were to rate your contentment level on a scale of 1 to 10, what number is in your mind? So Drew Hoffaker, what number is in your mind? <laughs> 22 after that song. Okay. You don't need the sermon then, bud. You can use it, you know. Um, anyone higher than an eight? We had an eight in the first service. Okay. Well, Eddie Eisler is officially the most content man in the church. Yeah, so think of that number, well, you know, your contentment number, and then ask, what would it take this week, this day, this sermon, to knock that number up or down? You know, what, what could make you go from... A 22 to a 23, um, or an 8 to a 9, or an 8 to a 2. You know, what, what might happen to impact your contentment? This theme of contentment is uh, the main theme of the text that we're looking at just now. We're going to ask three questions. We're going to ask, what is contentment? How do you get contentment? And then thirdly, how do you foster it in your life? What is contentment? How do you get contentment? And then how do you foster it in your life? So let's begin by asking this first question, looking at verse 10 through 12. What is contentment? Biblically understood, what is contentment? And the first thing that Paul does is make clear to us that whatever contentment is, it's not based upon our circumstances. Look with me at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Here he is thanking them for the the gift, the money that they had sent to him, and he is just grateful for their generosity. Then he says, verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12 follows this up. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is saying, listen, I'm a man who has experienced the full range of circumstances and the full range of human emotions. And, you know, I've had some really good days. Uh, Paul is a man that if, if life is going well, if, you know, he has the new job and the big house and the fast car and the great family and a new Rolex, he can say, I am, I am perfectly content. But more than that, when things are going badly... Uh, Paul, who was a man who was, who was beaten and flogged and shipwrecked and stoned and lonely and poor and isolated, in those circumstances, Paul says, yeah, I, I can still be perfectly content. In good or bad, in all circumstances, richer, poorer, better, worse, sickness, health, I have learned the secret of being content. Whatever this contentment is, it is not tied to his circumstances. Instead, we see in verse 12 that for Paul, contentment, gospel contentment is this. It's, it's a confidence that you know that you have everything you need. A contentment 
A, a deep rest, a deep confidence, knowing that you have everything that you need. Literally, the word content means to be, to be satisfied or to be sufficient. So you are, you are content when you can say, I'm satisfied that I've got everything I need in this circumstance. I, I'm content when I can say, I, I, I'm sufficient to make it through this situation. Let me try to illustrate this by um, injecting a little discontent into this room. Um, okay, Drew, you're 22, right? How would you, what happens to your contentment number if I were to ask you to stand up in front of everyone and give us the 66 books of the Bible in order, including those pesky minor prophets, you know? One of two things is going to happen to Drew. Either he's going to be like, sweet, I know this. I'm about to dominate. I'm up to a 25. Or he's going to be like, oh, no. And I see snake down to see. <laughs> or if Drew was super confident in his uh, Bible knowledge ability, if I asked him to stand up and sing a solo for us. Right? Or if I asked him to do some liturgical dance down the aisle, right? <laughs> These are things that I dare say would, would impact his contentment level. The contentment scale would start to go down. Why? If he knew the books of the Bible, if he was a great singer and a great dancer, his contentment level would stay high. Things as they are, the contentment level is going down because he thinks, I don't have the resources that I need to succeed in this situation. I don't have, I don't have what it takes to navigate the circumstance. I need something that I don't have if I'm to make it through, and therefore I'm discontent. The opposite, of course, if he had this uh, s- uh, sort of satisfaction and sufficiency to do those things, we could say he was uh, content. And Paul's point is here is, look, the circumstances vary. And you have good days and you have bad days. And you have good seasons and you have bad seasons. But in the gospel, there is something that can make you confident that you'll be able to make it through, irrespective of what your circumstances are. Well, what is that something? Let's ask our second question. If contentment is this confidence, this rest, knowing that you've got what it takes to make it through, how do you get that kind of contentment? The first thing we need to know from this passage again is that because contentment isn't a circumstantial thing, you can't gain it by changing your circumstances. And this is normally our approach to uh, becoming, uh, becoming happier people, to change our circumstances. But if, it's not, if it doesn't come from circumstances in the first place, then it's not altered by changing your circumstances. So materialism does not help your contentment levels. Gathering more stuff. A uh, recent poll reported that Americans who earn $25,000 a year believe that they would need $54,000 a year to fulfill the American dream. And Americans who earn $100,000 a year believe that they need $192,000 a year in order to fulfill the American dream. In other words, no matter how much you have, you think you need twice as much. And that illustrates for us that contentment is not, it's not a mathematical equation. It's not like new job, house, car, family equals contentment this equation where you can spit happiness out of the other end. And yet, so often, is that not just the way we approach it? That we'd be happier if contentment is on the other side of that pay raise, that next purchase, that partner. No, we can't find contentment through getting more. And in fact, when we try to do so, one of two things happens. First of all, as... um, One of my favorite theologians says, you find that you still haven't found what you're looking for. So you get that job, 
and you're still not happy. And you get that house, and you're still unhappy. And you have those kids, and they keep you up all night. <laughs> that feeling, and, and it's really an amazing thing to spend time with, with your folks who have been round the block of life a couple more times than you have, to hear them reflect upon, yeah, you know, making partner won't fulfill your life. When you get these things, you'll find out that you still haven't got the thing. Perhaps worse than that, the the second thing that happens when we look for contentment in material things is that we actually end up poisoning the thing itself. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you are looking to your marriage to bring you contentment, if you are thinking, I'm going to be happy, and I'm going to be happy through this relationship, then you are placing a burden upon that other person that they will never be able to fulfill. And so you're going to have a critical spirit when they disappoint you, and they're going to be frustrated because you've got a critical spirit with them, and you're going to have you're going to, what, what should be a beautiful, joyful thing of being in the mess of life together will become poison because you're hoping that it will provide you with something that it is not able to provide. And so contentment, how do we get it? Not through materialism. Secondly, briefly, we don't get it through minimalism. Sometimes we think, well, maybe the problem is that life's too busy. We need to declutter, we need to downsize, we need to have less going on in life, and then we'd be happier. All that happens then is that you're discontent and bored. Okay, that's not a thing that that works, right? Um, You know that time? It's like when you go on vacation and summer's coming. How many of us are going to go on vacation and sit there for the first few days like this, just looking for something to do, you know? Just unable to relax. Um... Decluttering life doesn't necessarily help. Minimalism doesn't work. Neither does this sort of stoicism, and I like this one because it's very Scottish. It's like this kind of stiff upper lip, no matter what happens in life, we're okay. You know? It's a slight denial of circumstances. My favorite illustration is, uh, you know the Monty Python scene where the knight gets his arm chopped off? (laughs) And he says, it is but a flesh wound. And then his other arm gets chopped off and the blood's kind of going... Okay? And he says, ah, it is a mere flesh wound. And he keeps on you know, yelling insults at, the, at his opponent. Right? Um, stoicism doesn't work. All that does is that the discontent that is in your heart, if you just deny it, you're, you're actually just ignoring a cancerous diagnosis. Because the Lord often speaks to us through our discontent. When we are unsettled, when we are restless, we can hear the voice of God calling us back to him. So materialism doesn't work, minimalism doesn't work, stoicism it doesn't work. How do we get contentment? Paul gives us the secret, verse 13. Keep reading. Paul does not keep the secret of contentment a secret, but tells us, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Verse 13 is the secret to contentment. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, of course, Paul doesn't literally mean all things. I believe Jesus so, you know, I can fly. Or I believe in Jesus so, like a TV evangelist, we can declare total victory over our health problems. Or, you know, I believe in Jesus and therefore I can perform with superhuman strength or make it in the NFL. Right? That's not what the verse means. What he's saying is I can do all things, meaning that it's a personal relationship with Jesus enables you to make it through everything that life might bring. We said contentment was having that satisfaction, that sufficiency. This verse says, you can do all things through him who strengthens you. So no matter what comes into your life, if you have a relationship with Jesus, 
he will provide you with what you need to follow him and follow him well through those circumstances. So Paul says, I can do all things. Whatever comes into my life, whatever comes into your life, isn't by accident. It's under the rule and reign of a sovereign God. And if it's something good, we can praise. If it's something bad, we can endure. If it's the unknown, we can trust him. How do we do this? Through him who strengthens us. Jesus doesn't show up to be the savior of the world and then leave his people hanging, but promises to be present with them through all the circumstances that will then come into their lives. Whatever he calls you to, he will also equip you for. That's what this verse is saying. What determines your contentment is not the power of your circumstances, but it's the presence of your Savior. An illustration of this, of course, is given to us in the Gospels, and I love this account, when the disciples and Peter have decided to go out onto the lake, and they're sailing along in the boat, and then in the distance they see this mysterious shadowy figure walking across the water. At first they think it's a ghost, and they're terrified, and then as the figure gets nearer, they realize that it's Jesus. And then Peter just has the craziest idea. He's like, okay, Jesus, if that's you, call me to come and walk on the water. So he's a wild man. It's a wild idea. Jesus says, sure, let's do it. So Peter, um, you know, puts his hands on the side of the boat and he lifts himself out and he dips that toe in the water. And then in a moment, he fixes his eyes on Jesus and he jumps out and the water holds him. He stands firm as surely as I stand on, on this platform right now. And then he begins to walk toward Jesus. And then you remember what happens next? An amazing phrase. It says, He saw the wind. Isn't that a great phrase? He saw the wind. What does that mean? Well, of course he didn't see the wind. He saw the waves being created by the wind. And he suddenly realized, wait a second. I don't know all the books of the Bible. I can't sing. I can't dance. And I can't walk on water. (laughs) And he begins to sink. Jesus reaches out, takes him by the hand, and pulls uh, pulls him back up. What's the point? The point is... That if Peter has his eyes fixed on Jesus, he can walk on water. But if he takes his eyes off Jesus and focuses on the circumstances, he will sink. And this verse, do all things through Christ who strengthens us, is saying you can navigate the roughest of waters if you have your eyes fixed on him. And I really, I really want to impress upon our hearts this morning that the Bible is never unrealistic or unsympathetic to the circumstances. You know, the Bible doesn't say, put it this way, your problem is not that you think your struggles are smaller than they are. It's that Jesus is so much bigger than you think he is. The problem isn't that you don't have real struggles. It's that Jesus is so much more, uh, so much more than any of the struggles that might come into your life. And I'm not just talking about those first world problems. I love this kind of phenomenon of first world problems. It really stops us from taking ourselves too seriously. So, you know, you go to babysit and you don't know what the Wi-Fi password is. It's just a terrible day. Or, you know, um, your gardener comes early and you've got to go get dressed to pay him. Or, you know, they give you too much goat cheese on your salad. (laughs) You know what I mean? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. (laughs) Eat that cheese. Um, 
We're not talking about the silly things in life. We're talking about the real things in life. Do you believe this morning that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is enough for your worst case scenario? Jesus is enough for your worst case scenario. So take your eyes off the waves of uh, you know, the, the ridicule or the rejection and off the waves of fear and failure and off uh, the waves of disappointment and death and fix them upon Jesus who is so much more. Your problems may be big, but we believe in a Jesus who is from everlasting to everlasting. Your problems may be wide, but we believe that Jesus spans from east all the way to west. Your problems may be you know, deep, but we believe in a Jesus who created death. Your problems may be dark, but we believe in Jesus who shines brighter than the sun. Your problem may even be death. And as, as your pastor, I don't say that lightly. Your problem may be death, and Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Your problem isn't that your struggles are bigger than you think they are. It's that Jesus is so much bigger. We are able to be content in all circumstances because we have that sense of sufficiency, not in our own strength, but in his strength, in the presence of the Savior with us. Thirdly then, finally, how do we foster this kind of contentment in our lives? If contentment is this deep rest that comes from knowing you've got all it takes to make it through, and if you get this contentment through Jesus, how do we foster this kind of contentment in our lives? Two things that we need and two things that we need to stop. Let's look at this briefly. Two things that you need. First of all, I cannot emphasize enough, the first thing you need for contentment is conversion. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you don't know Jesus, hear me on this. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, if you haven't felt the relief of having sins forgiven, I have nothing for you. And Christianity has nothing for you. There may be wisdom, there may be guidance, there may be sort of best practices in Scripture. But outside of Jesus, none of them do you any good. The foundation of our contentment is not in something that we can do, but in coming to the one who has done all things for us. And I want you to know this morning that if you were the only person on earth, if you were the last person on earth, Jesus would have had to die for you because you, like me, are sinful and broken and don't have it all together. And he would have. He would have come down from heaven and he would have died on the cross. Why? Because if you were the only person on earth, he'd be glad to die for you. And it's this eternal love where Jesus reaches out to us and draws us back into relationship with God so that we might rest that we might be secure, that we might know our sins are forgiven and, that he know, and know that he will be with us uh, to make it through all that life may hold. First thing we need is this conversion, this change where we go from living lives in our own strength to living lives, our lives out of history. Second thing that we need uh, to work this into our souls, work this into the dark corners, is conversation. And by conversation, I mean conversation with, with Jesus. That quiet time where we stop and rest and bring ourselves into his presence. It's a spiritual discipline to close your eyes, 
focus on him. Bring yourself to him. Be aware that he is with you. Taking your eyes off the waves and on to him. And I encourage you to do that. I want you to, in the spiritual discipline of prayer and meditation, bring yourself into his presence and weigh your circumstances against him. Weigh the fears, weigh the worries, weigh the concerns in his presence. Throw them all over the floor in front of him and see if he's not enough. See if he's not enough to enable you to navigate these waters. This great discipline of of, of prayer and meditation where we focus upon him, the one who is our sufficiency. I I know I spoke about this a little bit last week, but prayer is one of those things we talk about and feel guilty about because we don't do. Do this. I really encourage you. Um, And do this for your own contentment, for your own joy. Take time every day to quiet in your soul in the presence of Jesus. Two things you need, conversion and conversation. Two things that you don't need. The first of them is comparison. Comparison is a contentment killer. Um, Really because it fosters three lies. Let me talk about these briefly. First of all, comparison fosters the lie that contentment can be found in circumstances. You know, you look at, you know, how well you've done in your work, and then you look at someone else and they've done so much better. Uh, You compare yourself to their house, to their car, to their family. You compare yourself to what you don't have and think that if you had those things, you'd be happier. And that's just feeding the lie, feeding the idol, that contentment can be found in those things in the first place. The second thing it does is it, it feeds the lie, it feeds the entitlement lie. It feeds the lie that you deserve those things. Um, two things on this. First of all, if you had them, you wouldn't be that happy. You know, if you had that job, your boss might still be a jerk. And if you were the boss, then your employees might be. And if you had that, you know, that, that house, um, you'd have that house's air conditioning bill. And if you had those perfect children, you know what? They'd go home and be just like your kids. <laughs> right? Um, it, it doesn't really work out like we might hope. But, but, but more than that, it fosters this idea that because we have done things right, we deserve to have those things. And that entitlement mentality is absolutely rife in our culture across every section of the political spectrum. Uh, who do we blame? Um, partly our third grade teachers. I love you, third grade teachers. Okay, um, And I don't really mean them, but I mean this culture wherein we've told ourselves, work hard, do well, graduate, get into a good school, work hard there, get a good degree, get a good job, make a fence. Life will work out if you, if you just follow these steps. And look, there's lots to be said for hard work, and I'm a big believer in discipline, but Jesus says, follow me and expect suffering. Follow me and take up your cross. Follow me and die. How's that for entitlement today? You know? Um, comparison buys into that lie. So it buys into the lie that contentment can be found in circumstances, buys into the lie that we deserve more than we have. It also, though, buys into the lie that... Um, that the way God made you is not enough. 
It's this idea that, you know, everyone else seems so gifted. Everyone else seems so talented. Everyone else seems to have this, that, and the next thing to offer. Uh, even things that you're good at, other people are better at them. Um, when it comes to your faith, you believe in Jesus, but you know that, you know that kind of constant knowing that you, you're not really a very good Christian. And you know people who love Jesus a lot more than you do. And you know people who read their Bible a lot more than you do and pray a lot more than you do. And you're just not really that good. Period. As if God has messed up here. Because there's this strange dynamic in Christianity. And, and I, I want to be careful with it because it, it verges. Crassly, it could become a kind of motivational talk. There's this strange dynamic where, on one hand, we're absolutely sinful, broken, and terrible. And on the other hand, we're absolutely beautiful and loved by Christ. And so there's the sense in which you might not be all those other things, but do you know that you're the best version of you God ever made? Right? Um, yeah, I'm not as wise as some. I am not as gifted as some. I don't preach as well as some. But I'm the best James for safe. I'm also the worst James for safe. <laughs> right? It's a double-edged sword. But there is that idea that... There needs to be this comparison stops you from having a sense of peace about your own story. A sense of peace that all believers should have. A comfort in our own skin. That this is who we are. This is how God has wired us. Uh, We're striving uh, for sanctification. We're striving to grow. But we're not rebelling against who we are. We're pleased with how the Lord has made us. So, comparison is a contentment killer. Fourth and finally... Another thing that you need to stop, comparison. And then secondly, control. This idea that we are the masters of our own destiny. This idea that we can work hard and keep everything in order. That we can dot all the I's and cross all the T's and make sure that everything is going to be okay. One theologian says that contentment is not found in establishing your own security. But in abandoning your security to Jesus. So it's where we say, Lord, there's a thousand things happening today and I may or may not be able to control them all and my contentment is not going to be found there. My contentment is going to be found in the fact that you're in control of them all. That you have all these things under your sway and that you are not worried about them. And because you are not worried about them, I'm not going to worry about them either. I'm going to abandon my control to you. I hereby sign over my security to be your responsibility. And it's such a powerful, freeing thing because when you ask that question, to me, this really helps. Um, I ask myself a lot. I ask our staff a lot. um, Is Jesus worried about this? You know, whatever the concern of the day is, whatever the pressing kind of catastrophe of the moment is, like, how is Jesus feeling about this? Because I have a feeling he's not up in heaven anxious. I also think that... Yeah, follow the circle here. Um, I also think that, frankly, we worry about a lot of stuff that Jesus has no concern about. And what I mean by that is, when Jesus shows up and I'm babysitting, the first thing he tells me is not the Wi-Fi password, (laughs) okay? Like, it's a concern that's consuming me that's not actually that big a deal. Now, I want to be careful and nuance that because Jesus does care about everything, and he cares about, particularly in a circumstance that might not seem that important, he cares how we navigate it, and he cares about how we process it, and he cares about what we do with 
at these circumstances. So it's not that Jesus doesn't care. It's that he's not worried. And we are a people who can come and abandon our control to him, resting that he has things under control, resting that we have the resources that we need to make it through. So let me challenge you to do this. When you weigh yourself, and I mean literally, when you step on the scale, I want you to also weigh your contentment number. And I don't want you to let the number on the scale impact your contentment number. Okay? And I want you to reflect, if I'm at a two, why am I at a two? And if I'm at an eight, why am I at an eight? Uh, is my contentment scale being driven by the circumstances? I'm at, am I at a two because it's a bad day, or just as bad eight because it's a good day? Or am I finding the sense of rest, the sense of contentment, sufficiency through my relationship with Jesus that's fostered by coming to him? That finishes our study on Philippians. Next week, we're going to have uh, the great fun of diving into the topics that you have all selected. Um, honeymoon as senior pastor ends next week, so I look forward to it. Um, we're going to tackle generosity, which was one of the uh, most requested sermon topics. So uh, I look forward to that time. I really do. A time for us to work through the implications of the gospel for, for all these areas of our lives. For now, though, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for all that we have learned through you and through your servant Paul in this book of Philippians. And we thank you for the contentment that you offer us in the gospel that is not based on circumstance, but based on our relationship with Jesus. And we thank you that in offering it to us, you don't make light of our struggles, but you call us to see that Jesus is more. And that then you've given us this gift, this indescribable gift of being able to come into your presence and converse with you to lay all our worries at your feet and just see if you're not in control. I pray, Lord, that you would make us more and more people who have that, that rest. To your own honor and to your own glory, we pray. Amen.